Hello, people of the way. Uh, we're going to continue our study through the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. If you can turn with me to Exodus 37. Exodus 37. I have to say some of the things that we're just, I don't want to say we're going to fly through. Uh, but with, keep in mind as we go through these passages, don't ever, ever, ever forget that this is the fulfillment of the things that the Lord promised to Moses in his intimacy that he had with the Lord on the mountain. And he told him these things. The Lord was speaking these things and giving him the blueprints of uh, future events. Uh, and, and, and not so much in the, you know, kind of in the near future from the perspective of Moses. Keep that in mind because we're going to go through these passages in this chapter, the next chapter. And, you know, it's just going to seem like, wow, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to imply that this is the case. But it, it, it could be that the carnal mindset might sink in. It might, it might come to the forefront where you read through these passages and you're just like, okay, yeah, you know, the, uh, uh, the hooks and the silver and the, uh, the rings of gold and you just go through it kind of like um, get your chapter in, so to speak. You know, but it's something that's very holy in terms of these instructions, the intimacy that the Lord had with Moses. And now this intimacy, it's spreading. There is a reason behind it. It's spreading. Israel is now redeemed. The people are redeemed. There's these special people that, you know, the Lord, uh, 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 the spirit of the Lord was moving in these people. And not only in this particular moment in history, but being a shadow of the things to come. There are implications of what we're studying here in Exodus in this life for us today. And then implications for us in the life to come. It's very, very important to remember that. And I just, I, I don't want to gloss over these things. And so in, in chapter 37 of uh, Exodus, it says in verse 1 here, then Bezalel. Don't forget who Bezalel was. Bezalel, in the previous chapter, uh, chapter 36, uh, um um, actually, I should say in uh, uh, 35, in, in chapter 35, you remember he's in, in verse 30. It says the Lord call, has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. Remember Hur was, you know, it was Hur and Aaron who were holding up the arms of Moses when Moses was getting tired and his arms would come down. And then uh, uh, Joshua was having a, a battle. And he was fighting, and every time the hands of Moses would come down, the, they would the 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 enemy would start to uh, make advancements and 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 make gain traction in the battle. But then it was Hur and Aaron at the sides of Moses. They would lift up his hands, and every time Moses' hands would lift up, you would see Joshua gain strength. The people of Israel gain strength, and they would advance, and they won won the battle. They won the fight. Very important, especially when. You know, after the battle, Moses takes Joshua to the side and says, hey, Joshua, let me tell you what was happening. You know, you you were having your battle, which isn't, you know, that's a beautiful thing in the, the protective mode. But then at the same time, he says, you know, it didn't get to Joshua's head. He didn't come out of the battle thinking like, wow, look how hardcore I am. You know, look, I'm such a tough guy. He didn't come out like that. 
It could have, you know, he, he could have, but Moses, Moses took him to the side and says, you know, you were doing your battle, you were fighting, and, you know, during the battle, this is what was happening. We were praying for you. I was praying for you. And every time I, my hands came down, the bad guys, they started to make advances. They said the enemy came and the enemy started to win. And her and Aaron, they lifted my hands up and then you guys started to win. It's to say, wow, you know, the, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not to say, wow, look how hardcore Christian I am. Look how awesome I am. You know, I pray and things happen. That's pride. It's not to say, wow, look how awesome I am. You know, you're dealing with your, your sin. You're a crackhead. You know, you're an alcoholic or whatever. Wow, look how awesome I am. It's nothing like that at all. We have to be careful with that because that's where pride and arrogance, that's where Christians get on their little high horses. It's to say, wow, you're a crackhead. Man, I used to be there. Man, what's your alcoholic? Man, I used to be there. You're addicted to your sex. Man, you know, cut that stuff out, you know. It's a dead end. That road is a dead end. Come walk with me. Let me show you a better way. It's very important because pride can settle in. You know, to have the humility of heart, the humility of mind. That when these problems come up, to say, Lord, I need help. Lord, I need you. And if you remember in Exodus 35, you know, verse uh, 31, this is about uh, uh, Bezalel. In verse 31 says that the Lord filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. It's so cool because you see Moses here. He's not alone. He's not alone. You know, if you remember the little homework assignment last Sunday, you see in First um, Kings 19, Elijah, he's like, man, I'm all alone. What do I do? And he goes and prays. He's like, Lord, I'm not going to bow the knee to Baal. Everybody's worshiping Baal. You know, and it could be maybe he was in a little part of town, a little segment of the area, you know, and he's just like, man, knocking on doors. Hey, you know what? Let's pray to the Lord. And I'm sure I get to pray. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to watch my sports. You know, I'm going to watch uh, American Idol. You know, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to watch that. And no, I'm going to go do this. I don't want to pray. Who's got time for that? And Elijah like, man, where do I? I'm all alone. And then he would pray to the Lord. The Lord told him, no, you know, you go on a little journey. I'm going to show you something. And in obedience, he goes... And he heard the still small voice and the Lord gave him reassurance and says, you know, what, Elijah, you're not alone. You're not alone, Elijah. There are 7000 people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. It's so cool. I wonder what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego must have felt like. I meant sold out, sold out completely for the Lord. And everybody was bowing down to worship the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar erected. You remember, we haven't really studied it, but I make mention of it every now and then. But you read the account in, in Daniel. And then, you know, Nebuchadnezzar erects this image and says, okay, at this specific time, the trumpets are going to sound, the instruments are going to play. And when this sound, when this sound goes forth, everybody has to bow down and worship this image. 
And sure enough, the trumpet sounded. Everybody bows down, save three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, when everybody's standing up, it's easy to get lost in the sauce. It's a piece of cake to just be a face in the crowd. But you know what? When that crowd, when the multitudes, when they bow down and worship the image, when they bow down in homage to satanic things, demonic things, things are not of the Lord. When you stand, you'll stand out for sure. You'll stand out for sure. And you know what? It's contagious. It's contagious. And not only that, it's convicting too. Because look at what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. He says, who are these guys? You know, bring them to me. He comes and, you know, he has them brought up to him. And then all of a sudden they say, yeah, you know, we know you're the king, but we will never bow down to this image. We serve the Lord. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, we're going to kill you. Throws them in the cauldron of fire, in in this pit of fire. And then all of a sudden, you know, he expects to see like all the, you know, to to smell it, you know. I'm not hearing anybody cry out. I'm not hearing anybody shout. He looks in. He says, I thought I threw three people in here, but I see one, two, three. And this fourth, he's like the son of God. The Lord was with them in the fire. They were not alone. So cool. So beautiful. Especially, you know, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're like Elijah. Or like Moses or Joshua or Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego. Or Saul or Ananias. Or Barnabas. Like, man, where are where is everybody? Never ever forget you're not alone. Who knows how many people haven't yet bowed the knee to Baal? I shouldn't say haven't yet bowed the knee to Baal. Or just in their heart of hearts and their minds, they're just like, no way. I will get my head chopped off before I serve this. I'm never going to serve this guy. I only serve Jesus Christ. They might not be in your immediate locale, but they're out there. And be of good cheer. So you see Moses here in, in chapter 37 now, you know, he's given the blueprints. He received the blueprints in his intimacy with the Lord and he shared it to the people. And now you have the execution of the plans. I mean, if you ever get blueprints, you know, you say like, man, you know, I'm going to construct a house. I'm going to build a house. You talk to the contractor, the engineer, the, what am I, what am I called? The architect, you know, sometimes those butt heads, because the architect is like, wow, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And the engineer's like, it's impossible. You're not doing that. So they butt heads a little bit, sometimes a lot of it, but it's so cool because it's like, okay, you see the blueprints, you see the plans. Maybe you know that you have a, a good contractor and they show you the model, they construct the model, they come to your office, they come to your place and they show you like the, you know, 3D imagery and they show you like a little presentation, you know, they click a little button and you go, get, go inside the house, you know, you go inside, you do this, everything's laid out like this and you're like, well, this is cool. But then what about the day when the ground starts breaking? 
you know, when they break ground, you know, the, the big uh, thingamajig is there, the big tractor deal, you know, with this big uh, shovel thing. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> you know, the little tractor thing with the shovel. You know, and you hear the engine start, the guy turns the key, you know, and starts, you know, going over the ground and digging the ground. It's like, whoa, this is so cool. I talked to the guy about the blueprints, you know, a month ago, two months ago, and now we're actually breaking ground. And you start to see the little hole, the holes in the ground, the foundation. And a couple of days later, they're pouring car concrete. It's like, wow, that's actually happening. And that's what's happening here in Exodus 37. It says, then Bezalel, in verse 1, made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You know, I wonder, you know, it, it, I, I don't want to imply faithlessness for Moses on his behalf. I don't, I don't want to imply that. But I wonder, you know, in, in, in Exodus 25 through 31, it, as the Lord is giving him this blueprints, uh, and the Lord was showing it to him. We see, you know, Brother Stephen, when the Holy Spirit was, you know, giving him the account, you know, and he was giving the account to the high priests and the religious leaders. He was saying specifically, you know, the Lord showed him these things. So it was like a little presentation that the Lord was giving to Moses. Like, look, Moses, you know, this is what I'm doing. Maybe like a vision, you know, Moses having a vision of like, wow, this is like, this is what the tabernacle looks like. And I wonder if Moses in his mind was like, how in the world I'm just one guy? How in the world is this going to happen? And it's so cool because you see here, it says then Bezalel, you know, that he's starting to do these things. That's what's so cool about a relationship with the Lord, a love relationship with the Lord. You don't have to know the how. You don't have to know the why. You just have to know the who. That's it. Jesus Christ. It's all you have to know. He's the only one. You don't have to know all the details, the little details. You don't have to know. And that's what's so cool because you know what? If we did know the details, if we did know exactly like, Lord, I want to know what are you doing? You need to be very careful with that. Because it's in those moments that the Lord says, okay, I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm calling you over here to this area and I'll tell you, you know, you're going to die. <laughs> Would we still go? Sometimes we want to know everything about everything. We don't have to know those things. You only have to know Jesus Christ and be attentive to his voice. Like Ananias. Remember, Ananias, I want you to go to this house over here and you're going to meet up with this guy by the name of Saul. And Ananias is like, okay. <laughs> okay, Lord, but, you know, can I tell you something, Lord? I've heard about this Saul guy and he's doing things to Christians. He's doing things to people of the way. And the Lord gives him the reassurance. No, Ananias, he is my vessel. I'm using him. He's mine. And you don't see Ananias, you know, he like, he doesn't run away. He goes in obedience. Okay, Lord. Yeah, I'm a little freaked out. You gave me some comfort. You gave me some reassurance. So I'm going to go. 
I wonder what the thoughts of his mind were when he was walking, when he gets to the doorstep. It's one thing when in obedience, you know, obedience is a lot easier when you're far away from the objective. But when like before the first knock at the door, when his like fist was up at the door and he's about ready to knock and his wrist is bent and he's like, okay, this is it. And then, oh man, I wonder if he was sweating, kind of nervous or Maybe he was at complete and total peace. And he goes in. Wow, this is just like the Lord told me. He's talking with Saul, a former persecutor of the saints. And he's talking to Saul. I wonder what comfort he must have felt at that time. Wow, I'm talking to Saul and he's not beating me up. I'm talking to Saul and he's not, you know, he's not going to put a knife in my throat. It's so cool how the Lord works. So here in Exodus 37, you see in verse 2 about Bezalel and his handiwork. Moses is seeing these things happen, the actual, you know, the execution of the blueprints, the building, the actual construction. He overlaid it in verse 2 with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of, of gold all around it. You know what's so cool about this? The gold. Remember the people have their gold and they gave their gold so that their gold could be melted and fashioned into this golden calf. They didn't give all their gold. Some of the gold was given to the calf. The first time around it was given for the calf. But now look. Now look. I got to admit, you know, there's some painful passages in the Bible, just like Exodus 32, when Moses comes down from the mountain, what he sees, the type of sin, and he's so angry. Righteous indignation, he's so angry. What did the people do? He tells, tells to Aaron, he tells Aaron, Aaron, what did the people do? Did, did they put a knife at your throat and say, make us the calf? Did they put a gun to your head and say, you know, if you don't make us the calf, we're going to squeeze the trigger? Why, why did you bring this sin upon them? Very interesting. A very, you know, a poignant message for pastors and elders. Actually, I should say just pastors. Very poignant message for pastors. The responsibility of leadership. The responsibility that Moses put on Aaron. Like, Aaron, why have you brought this sin? Why have you brought this sin upon this people? But you see here the gold now, it's given in complete and total service to the Lord. That's what's so cool about, you know, the aftermath of sin. You could have people, they spend their money for the finest crack from Chiapas, Mexico. And they get their, you know, marijuana, which is like a, you know, an essential business now. Stupid. Pot shops, an essential business. You know, 10 years ago, it was illegal. Five years ago, it was illegal. You have selling pot on the street and you get arrested. Now it's an essential business. Crazy. I was watching the news the other day. Liz and I were watching the news. And you see they have the pot shops for social distancing. You can't, they don't want the stores, they don't want the people to park their car and get in, go inside the building and get their pot and go back to their car. So for social distancing, they come out to you. So they're like on the street corners. They're like, you know, five years ago, the cops would see you get arrested. And you know, selling crack on the street, selling pot on the street, marijuana. 
you know, and they see the cherry tops come and they just bolt and start running. Hey, the cops are here. The cops are here. The cherry tops. Everybody just starts running. Now the cops are like right there on the corner, parked on the corner. People come by, pick up their pot, exchange money and boom. Crazy days. Crazy days. You know, it's like what's good is evil and what's evil is good. Crazy. But that's what's so cool about the aftermath of sin. People could be spending their money on all kinds of things. Crack, pot, sex, whatever, alcohol. And then all of a sudden they have a golden calf moment where they realize the, the, the nature of their sin. And then they repent and they have to taste of the bitterness. They have to reap what they have sown. But then something happens where it's like, whoa, you know, like that guy's no, no longer spending a hundred bucks. Throwing out a hundred dollar bill, you know, at a female. Throwing out a hundred dollar bill for some crack. It's like, wow, you know, he's given, you know, the hundred dollar bill in service to the Lord. And nobody knows about it. It's just, wow, you know, hundred dollar bill in the, in the collection plate. In service to the Lord. That's what's so cool about this gold that the people give. Now look, it's being used for this holy construction. In verse 3. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set in its four corners. Two rings on one side and two rings on the other side of it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark to bear the ark. He also made the mercy seat. He also made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits was its length and a cubit and a half its width. He made two cherubim of, of beaten gold. He made them of, of one piece at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end on this side and the other cherub on the other end on that side. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. That's like, you know, if you ever see like, um, I forgot the name of the movie. It's like a cartoon where it was like, you know, about the Exodus. It was like the Prince of Egypt or whatever. But you see the ark there and it has like on the top of the ark, the two cherubs on the top and they have their wings drawn in. It's like the model that it was given. I'm not trying to, you know, give, you know, credence to a cartoon, but just for imagery's sake, you know, you see the two cherubim at the top. You know, and they have their wings in. It's these blueprints that are given here in these chapter. In the, you know, it was in chapter twenty-five, but it, the actual construction of the blueprints was chapter twenty-five. But the construction is actually happening now. So verse eight says, one cherub at one end of this side, and the other cherub at the other end on this side. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another with faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. You know, this is very important. It's not just like, wow, you know, like, uh, you know, I don't get it. What's happening here? The cherubim, I don't understand it. Like, you know, he's building this thing. It's very holy what's happening here. Because if you remember in chapter 25, turn with me really quick to chapter 25. And what do we see happening here in verse 21 of 25, chapter 25, verse 21? The Lord is telling Moses in the blueprint phase, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark 
and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you. You see, I will meet with you, and I will speak with you. It's a very, very holy thing. What's happening here? Holy thing in Old Testament connotations. I'll explain that in a little bit. And there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give, which I will give you in commandment of the, to the children of Israel. Because remember, in the Holy of Holies, that's where the Ark of the Testimony would go. It was inside there, and only the high priest would go into this area. There was the, inside the temple, there's like different chambers. You, you walk inside the temple, and then you go inside the temple, and that's where the offering is made. You know, the offering is sacrificed. You're sprinkled with blood, and then your sin is atoned for, and you go back home. But then the high priest, you know, they would take some of that blood and then they would go and then they would have these different elements, the lampstand, the showbread. They would have different things in, in service of the actual temple. The priests. And then all of a sudden, you know, the pre in, you, there's this other chamber inside the temple and that's called the holy place. And priests would go in there and inside the holy place, there's another chamber, which is called the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go in there. And it's there in verse 22 where the Lord says, it's there that I will meet with you and I will speak with you. And then the high priest would come out and the priest would say, okay, they would tie a rope around his feet because they couldn't enter. They were not the high priest. And if they didn't hear the bells at the bottom of his robe, there would be like little bells. And if they didn't hear the bells moving, they would know, oh man, he's dead. You know, he, like the, the Lord took his life. And then all of a sudden they didn't hear the bells. They would pull him out and drag him out. And it's okay, we, gotta, we need a new high priest. You know, but what's so crazy is that I shouldn't say it's crazy, but I mean, it's beautiful, and especially in new covenant terms. So the high priest would come out, you know, and say something to the priest, give a little exhortation to the priest, walk out the gate to the people, the people would be there and they would say, what does the Lord want for us? What is it that the Lord has to say? And then the high priest would speak, thus saith the Lord. And then he would say, this is what the Lord told me, guys. This is what we have to do. This is, you have to keep your homes clean, keep your lives pure. Get rid of the sin. Repent. Be, be right with the Lord. And you, 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 you see that concept and you're like, wow, piece of cake. That's it? You know, you read that, you think about it, and it's like, is that it? I mean, it's, I'm not advocating the law, but when you think about it like that, it's like, okay, that, it's kind of easy. Just like you read the Bible, and it's like, Lord... It's kind of easy. I got to say, you know, it's easy with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because once you start to see the carnal nature start to maybe get a little stronger than it needs to be, than it should be, it's evident. It's evident. You can feel it. You know, those around you can see it. 
Like, man, why is this guy talking like this? He's, he, he's never talked like this before. Why is he behaving like this? He's never done like this, done like that before. Why is she saying these things? You can see it. That's why the Lord says, hey, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. So this mercy seat, it's no small thing at all. It's very holy. That's why it was not only in the holy place, it was in the holy of holies. And so look at what happens here going back to 20, uh, 37. Exodus 37. In Exodus 37, verse 10. He made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold all around it. More gold, you see? More gold. I love it so much because, you know, it's kind of a big bummer when you read chapter 32. And all the gold that was given for the golden calf. I mean, we don't call it the calf. We call it the golden calf. You know, that gold came from somewhere. It was the people that gave their gold. You know, and they had to taste of that bitterness and reap what they had sown. But now you see their gold is put into the use, into the service of the Lord. Never lose hope. Never lose hope. Where you see the golden calves, when you see the golden calves, never lose hope. And so he says here uh, in verse 12, also he made a frame of a handbreadth all around it and made a molding of gold for the frame all around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that were at its four legs. The rings were close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table and overlaid them with gold. <clears throat> He made of pure gold the utensils which were on the table, its dishes, its cups, its bowls, and its pitchers for pouring. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. You know, it's like the gold. It's, it's no longer for the sake of the people. It's like, you know, people think like gold, you know, look at my bank account. Gold, it's like this. Oh, awesome. You see this gold. It's not for the people. It's not for themselves. It's no longer for the golden calf. It's for the Lord. This lampstand lampstand of pure gold of hammered work he made the lampstand its shaft its branches its bowls its ornamental knobs and its flowers were of the same piece and six branches came out of its sides three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side there were three bowls made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches coming out of the lampstand, you know, this lampstand is very important, especially in terms of the symbolism of, you know, of like when Zechariah has his vision in Zechariah 4, and he has a vision of a lampstand and he sees the olive trees. And he asks him, who are the olive trees? He asks the angel, who are the olive trees? And then you see when you read Revelation, you see the, the olive trees in uh, uh, Revelation. I want to say Revelation. Eleven. Revelation eleven. The two witnesses. The two witnesses. You say, what do you mean the, the two witnesses? 
Well, when you read the prophecy in Zechariah four, you know is the 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 uh, the two the two uh, uh, um, uh, the two olive trees are the two um, the two olive trees are the two witnesses. Read Revelation eleven and then read Zechariah four. And you start to see like, whoa, you know, here we're, you know, in, in Exodus 25, you see like the 25, 26, all these elements that are put into place. You start to realize, okay, like these things are put into motion, but like, I don't get it. What's the purpose behind it all? It's almost like they're like little on, on the span, on the, how do I say this? Like in the, in the span of time, they're like little checkpoints. I mean, not, not to diminish what they were, because remember, the Lord would speak to the people through the, uh, the, the mercy seat. It's there he would meet with them and, and speak to them. But then at the same time, you see, when I say checkpoints, look at we're going to see when we read the Bible in, in, in continuation through the Old Testament. We're going to see like how the tabernacle would move. The people would kind of pack up, collect everything and then pack up and move. And the Lord would direct their path. The Lord would direct their steps. And then they'd come to one location, set up the tabernacle, and worship the Lord. And then the Lord would say, okay, it's time to pack up. They would pack up, and the Lord was with them the whole time. You remember when the Lord told them, you know, after the golden calf incident? He tells them. He straight up tells them. He says, you know what? I'm not going to go with you guys. You know, I, I, I'm not going to be with you guys. Because he says in Exodus 33 verse 3 go up to a land flowing with milk and honey for i will not go up in your midst lest i consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people and then the lord uh, moses interceded for the people he interceded for the people and then all of a sudden the lord says okay i'll be with you but you know what when he gave when the Lord gave Moses the Ten Commandments again, the two tab tablets, there was the uh, additive of sacrifice. You need sacrifice. I'll be with you, but you need a sacrifice. What about for you and me today as new covenant believers? How the Lord is with us? And what's our sacrifice? Jesus Christ. It's not really our sacrifice. It's our acceptance of his sacrifice. The only begotten son. You see how beautiful this is? We don't, we don't save ourselves lest any man should boast. It's the Lord that does the saving. You know, it's, but, you know, our faith, you know, there, there is, you know, faith which can grow. It's not, you know, we have like two ounces of faith. No, two ounces of faith can turn into two liters of faith, can turn into two gallons of faith. I don't know if I did that right, ounces to, you know. You know what I mean, though. Faith can grow. And what happens when faith grows? Our trust in the Lord grows more and more and more. And faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. You see? It's like a little, it's like. A holy process. How eternity is written on our hearts. Just read Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Eternity is written on our hearts. You know, from our mother's wombs, we are formed. 
formed in our mother's womb, and eternity is written on our hearts. And something happens, you know, we're born, you know, we're, 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 we're fresh into the world. And then we grow up in the fallen nature. We start to learn evil. We're born corrupt. You think of a beautiful, beautiful, sweet baby. It's like, wow, so innocent. And then we learn to walk. We get a friend. We get another friend. We get lied to. We start to lie. You know, you get punched in the face. You start punching people in the face. You get another friend that starts cussing. You start cussing. It's like it's progression as you get older. Five years old, eight years old, ten years old. You ever see like little ten-year-old kids that, you know, they cuss like crazy? It's so sad. And then all of a sudden, it's like eternity is written on their hearts. And they're like little 12-year-olds. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus, man. What do you mean, Jesus? And you can go through the word. You can talk about testimony. You could bring it very personal. What about when that 12-year-old becomes 15, becomes 18, becomes 20, and they're just strung out on drugs, and they're just so like, just like, man, I'm going to blow my brains out. I can't stand this. You say, man, you remember when you were 12 and I was trying to tell you about Jesus Christ? Maybe you're able to hear me a little bit better. You know how you want to blow your brains out? I was there too, man. I was there too. You know who rescued me? Jesus Christ. You start to tell him more and more. And that little spark, eternity was written on his heart 20 years ago, 22 years ago. And that little spark, thus fulfilling what the word says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And faith grows. Little building blocks. You see, so these things in the in Exodus, the temple, you know, the tabernacle, it's not a small thing at all because it's a shadow of the things to come. Zechariah, when he had his visions, even what we read in Revelation 11. I have to say, you know, the Lord says, you know, all every job, every tittle will be complete. And I have to wonder, like, man, you know, what's left? How many more jots are left, Lord? How many more tittles are left? Maybe just a couple more. But how many more until these events start to come to pass? The ones that you told us about, the ones that you warned us about, the ones that you prepared us for. You prepared us for these times. How much longer, Lord? And so you see here, I forgot where I left off in Exodus 37. I forgot where I left off, so to play it safe, I'll go to verse 18. <laughs> And six, I do that sometimes, you know, since I, I can't see you guys. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm extra safe. I don't have any fists flying in my direction. So sometimes, you know, when you're here with me, you know, I'm like, I, 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 I'm like, okay, I, I got to remember. I put my finger and I start talking and I have my finger here. But, you know, here without you guys, I don't have my, I don't put my finger here. So I think it's 20, but to be safe, I'll go to 18. 
and six branches came out of its side, three sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. There were three bowls like the almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and for the six branches coming out of the lampstand and on the lampstand itself were four, four bowls made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. There was a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two, third two branches of the same, according to the six branches extending from it. You see the specificity here. Turn with me really quick to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews 8 here, in verse, the middle of verse 4, the writer of Hebrews, which I have a strong suspicion is Paul. I've already explained my the reason for my strong suspicion long ago. But it says here in the middle of verse 4, Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy. That's a big deal, what we just read here in verse 4 and 5. There are priests who offer, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy. The copy. What we're reading in Exodus, as beautiful as it is, never ever forget that it's a mere copy. That's it. It would be like a Van Gogh painting, you know, and you know, somebody takes a picture, you go to a fancy museum, you take a picture of a Van Gogh, and then, you know, you put a nice filter on your camera image, and you blow it up, you take it to, you know, a Photoshop or whatever, a company that does it, you know, and you make, man, you know, I want a five by 10 mural on my wall. And you tell them, hey, make me a five by 10 mural. You frame it, make it look all nice. You know, you put it on your wall, nice frame, nice backdrop. No bubbles behind it. It's pressed nice and firm. And it looks beautiful. It looks nice. But when you get up close, you can't see the layers of paint. You can't see the depths of the paintbrush. You can't see the strokes of the paintbrush. And then you realize this is just a copy. You say, how much, you know, you're at somebody's house, you're looking at this beautiful Van Gogh. Wow, this is beautiful. The lighting that you have in here, it just, it sings. How much did you pay for it? hundred bucks, you know. The frame was the most expensive, you know, hundred bucks. How much is the original? Man. 3.5 million, if that, maybe even more, 3.5 million. So it's like, wow, you know, you have this nice mural on your house, on your wall, but you know what? It's just a copy. Beautiful, beautiful Van Gogh. Beautiful. But it's just a copy. That's what the Lord is saying here. You say, what do you, I thought you said it was written by Paul. Well, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is what the Lord is saying.
since there are priests in verse 4 who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy, not the original, and a shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed. Remember, the Lord was giving him the blueprints. Chapter 25, Exodus 25 through 31, divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The Lord is telling him, hey, follow the blueprints, Moses, follow the blueprints. So Moses tells the people, thus saith the Lord. And then the people start to do it just like beautiful Bezalel. The Lord gave, you know, gave him wisdom. He says in verse 6, But now, he, notice the capital H here, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, remember the first covenant is the copy if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. That's why you hear me say from time to time how the Old Testament law, it was specifically built and constructed with loopholes. Loopholes. Because if it had no loopholes, then no place would have been sought for a second. There's another covenant. There's a better covenant. The priests, the high priests, the ones who had Stephen killed, the one who's, who had our Lord killed, the ones who are persecuting brother Saul, who was formerly of them in our studies in the book of Acts. They're servants of the copy. They're servants of the copy. I mean, how would you feel if you go to a museum, a fancy museum, and you expect to see originals? Wow, I want to see the original, you know, Van Gogh. I want to see the original, you know, all these paintings. You see the, the pinster, the pen, the, like the strokes of the, the brush. You can even see like the kind of like the, the hair of the brush, like, you know, and some of them you can see like a hair that's still stuck in it. You can see, wow, this was like a fine brush that he used, you know, and then he took this area over here and did these strokes with a thicker, thicker brush. You can see like, you can see emotion in these paintings when you see the depths. But then you go there and it's just a bunch of $100 pictures. You know, 50 bucks a copy. With a nice frame, nice lighting, but it's just a copy. And then you see all the curators in the museum. They're treating, oh, stand back, stand back. 20 feet back, stand back. Don't get too close. No flash photography, sir. Madam, madam, no flash photography, please. And it's like, whoa, you guys are, you guys are, sir. You, why are you treating like, like it's such a, such a big deal? These are $50 jobs, you know? This is a $100 Van Gogh. It's not the original. The original is $4 million. The original is $7 million. You guys are you, you, you curators. You dressed are nice. You're telling us to stand 10 feet back, 20 feet back. No flash photography. But this is just a copy. 
It's not the real deal. And that's what the Lord is saying here. These priests, they serve, in, in accordance with the law, they serve the copy. So as much as we see these things in the law in Exodus 37, the, the fulfillment and the actual construction of these tabernacle elements, beautiful, beautiful thing. But it's only a copy. A shadow of the things to come. The intimacy that Moses had with the Lord in the mountain, receiving the blueprints. It also leads to other people having intimacy with the Lord. Israel's, you know, Bezalel's intimacy with the, with the Lord. Israel's intimacy with the Lord. Individually and corporately. Does that sound familiar? As new covenant believers? I mean, when you consider Philip's intimacy with the Lord. And what happened in the lands that the Lord took him through. You know, what happened, how the church blew up in one area. What about what the Lord did in him and through him to the uh, uh, Ethiopian eunuch? You see how the intimacy that Philip had with just one guy. And then all of a sudden he had intimacy with the Lord and it's just spreading to other people. These are the eunuch now has intimacy with the Lord. He was baptized. He tells Philip, Philip, you know, what's stopping me? What, why can't, you know, stop the chariot, stop the chariot. Hey, Philip, you tell me these things and I love it. I was wondering, you know, what, what, is, what is this Isaiah 53 I'm reading about? Is it, who, who's he writing about? And Philip tells him. He's speaking about Jesus Christ. You know, and he tells him about the baptism. He says, stop the chariot. Philip, let's handle business. Why this water right here? Can I be baptized there? Like right now? And Philip, if you believe with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul, let's do it. And the two go in the water. And Philip goes down. They both come out. And wow, how beautiful. Philip had intimacy, but now the eunuch has intimacy. So it's not just to have intimacy with the Lord and then head for the hills. Because it can be a contagious thing. You know, to share it, to be a fisher of men, fisher of women. And so in verse 22 of uh, Exodus 37, verse 22, we continue. Their knobs and their branches were of one piece. All of it was one hammered piece of pure gold, and he made its seven lamps, its wick trimmers, and its trays of pure gold. Remember, we kind of talked a little bit about wick trimmers in our study in uh, Matthew 25 about the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. You know, it's so cool because in Matthew 25, verse 7, <clears throat> All ten virgins trim their lamps. And it's very interesting because it's kind of like an art. I watched this YouTube video <clears throat> about wick trimming. And I didn't realize. I just thought, you know, take a piece of string, stick it in the thing, and then like the oil it on the bottom end, it, it, it kind of absorbs the oil and it seeps into the top portion. And that's what you light. You know, you light that. And, you know, if 
if you're ter- I mean, if you did it like that, like I thought you'd do it, you know, I didn't realize it was such an art. But if you do it like that, I mean, you're going to run out of oil quickly because it's like fast absorption. But when you take that wick and you like, you know, you, you, the way you wind it, the way you work it, it's very skilled. And the way it absorbs and the way it holds the, the oil that's in the base, but then at the same time, when you light it, the way it burns. You know, if you're skilled, you can make like a little thing of oil last for, you know, five minutes or, you know, an hour. It takes skill. It's very interesting because remember, of the ten virgins, five were unwise. Five were wise, but five were unwise. Five were foolish. Unskilled and unprepared for the time. It kind of begs me to wonder. It causes me to wonder. What were they doing the whole time? What were they doing? You know, it's so cool that there were 10 virgins. It's so cool that they all had their lamps. They all had oil. But what about in the, the, the period of time when they knew the bridegroom was coming, but it wasn't yet, you know, it, it wasn't yet time to meet him? What were they doing? You know, were the, were the five wise, were they like... Trimming their wicks? Were they so skilled that they were, you know, arranging their wicks in a manner by which it would burn slower so it could last longer? And it makes me think about Christians as a student kind of Christian. You know, you can go to college or whatever, you know, enter and enroll in university and you are an enrolled student. But yet you can be an enrolled student, but not a disciple. Not to excel in a specific discipline. I'll put it another way. To walk into a church building, social distancing, of course. (laughs) I don't mean it. I mean, I do in these times that we live in. You walk into a church building, Bible in hand. You sit in the pew, the preacher starts to preach, the teacher starts to teach, the word goes forth, you have your Bible open, except your mind is in la-la land. Your mind is on the sports, your mind is on work, your mind is on, you know, the party you had on Friday night. Your mind is on, you know, the crack shipment that's coming on Tuesday. Your mind is on the strip club. Your mind is on whatever. A movie, TV show. Or are you like you have the Bible? The preacher is preaching, the teacher is teaching, the word is going forth, and you're like a sponge just soaking it all in. Wow, you're reading, you're following. Wow, this is so cool. Wow, Lord. I pray that you would teach me. And it's like, wow, I'm learning so much. The preacher says it's over. Goodbye. You go home. You open up your Bible and you keep reading. Oh, Lord, more. I want more of you. You see like college students, you know, they go to college, you know, and they just go like a straight D student. You know, they get their degree. It's like, but what are they students of? 
They're still the same schlep that they were when they were in high school. Heck, the same schlep they were in junior high. Just older and hairier, you know? But then at the same time, it's like, well, but look, who's the disciple? Who's a junior high kid who was like, you got straight A's? Who's the high school kid, straight A's? The college kid, straight A's? And now they get out and, you know, he or she's like, you know, excels in their, and masters in his or her profession. And of course, I'm speaking in worldly connotations in terms of, you know, learning and education and excelling in education academically. But the same thing applies with Christ. Our relationship with the Lord. Yeah, I can come to church, sit in the pews and just sit there, open up my Bible, look awfully holy. But my mind is in la-la land. My mind is elsewhere. That's not a disciple. Because of being a disciple requires discipline. Discipline. And you see this reference to wick trimmers. The Lord is the one who brought it up. It's red letters in my Bible. Matthew 25, verse 7. All ten virgins, they were trimming their wicks, getting them ready, prepping them. But five of them were not skilled. Five of them were, you know, they just took a piece of string, put it in, and thought, okay, I'm good to go. My wick looks like this other virgin's, looks like hers. I'm good to go. But when the time came, things got hot and heavy, and my wick is not like hers. You start to realize, man, what have I, have I been doing this whole time? You know what, Lord? I don't want to be like a dumb student. I don't want to be a schlep like I was five years ago. I don't want to be a schlep like I was one year ago. Lord, I want to be a disciple. I want to learn from you, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, because you know what? I thought I was good to go. I thought going to church would make me okay. But you know what? It's not. I want to be a disciple, Lord. And the Lord hears. He knows the hearts. He'll teach you. He'll show you these things. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wow, you know, disciples. Just like you see the disciples in the Gospels. And then you get to Acts. They're not disciples anymore. They're apostles. Messengers. The Lord gives them a special mission. Hey, I've given you this message. I've given you the good news. You've received the good news. Now, I want you to go and be a messenger of the good news. Okay, you've been a disciple. You're disciplined. Now, I want you to use those things. Just like Moses on the mountain. Look, Moses, let me show you. I'm showing you this. I'm showing you that. Now, we're putting it into place. It's not happening. You thought you were alone, but you're not alone. And God is glorified. The people are edified and God is glorified. Just straight up Exodus. As New Covenant believers, we're learning these things. We're extrapolating these things from the Old Testament. 
not to go back to the law, but to understand that the law is just a copy. We're going to the original. So Exodus 37, verse 24, of a talent of pure gold, he made it with all its utensils. He made the incense altar of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its width a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. And he overlaid it with pure gold, its top, its sides all around and its horns. He also made for it a molding of gold all around it. He made two rings of gold for it under its moldings by its two corners on both sides as holders for the poles with which to bear it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the perfumer. You start to see this converging of talents given in service to God. You know, we study, you look at chapter 36 and all these skilled people, these skilled workers, people who had, you know, they were very skillful workers in chapter 35. And the Lord is saying, hey, you know what? This is take all these skilled people. Everyone who, who came, whose heart was stirred and whose spirit was willing. It wasn't like a mandate. Hey, you will give of your gold. You will do this. You will construct this. No, it wasn't like compulsion of man. Everyone who was willing, whose heart was stirred, it was a free gift that the people were giving, not out of religion, but because of relations, relationship with the Lord. Remember, this is after the golden calf because you have a different Israel. You know, as we look at this construction, the next several weeks, we already started, but you know, the next several weeks, we're going to look at the actual construction of things. But there's something I want to build up in, in terms of construction. Turn with me to Jude chapter 1. I could just say turn with me to Jude because there's only one chapter. But in Jude chapter 1. We're going to look at the edification of self. The edification of self. In Jude chapter 1, verse 17, but you, beloved, remember. In other words, I'll put this in another framework here. But you, beloved, don't forget. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. You see these people walking on ungodly lusts today. And what does the Lord call them? Mockers. You know, they walk in their ungodly lusts and you tell them, hey man, that's not good. What do you mean it's not good? Who told you? Well, I'm a Christian. I read my Bible. And the Bible says that's not good. The Lord Jesus Christ says that's not good. Who are you to correct me? You think you're so holy, you're so stupid, get out of my face. And they start making fun of you. There would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons. Translates 
literally as worldly-minded, looking at the physical only. They don't have eyes for the spiritual. That's what the Bible calls sensual persons. They're worldly, very carnally-minded, looking at the physical only. Sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. This last part of verse 19 is a big, all of verse 19 is a big deal. But this last part, not having the spirit, that's a big deal. A bunch of Simons. Remember Simon in Acts 8, how the Holy Spirit came upon the church. You know, they, they all received Jesus Christ, even Simon. They were all together. They all had koinonia, the ecclesia. They were together. And they were all baptized in Jesus. But then Peter, the heavies came, Peter and John. And Peter realized, hey, you know what? The Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on any of you guys yet. And then he prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit fell on everybody except for one. His name was Simon. You know why? His heart wasn't right before the Lord. He had bitterness in his heart. And his heart wasn't right. And the Holy Spirit skipped over him, bypassed him. Not having the Spirit. You know the great apostasy of the last days? The people who were defectors away from truth? They're a bunch of Simons. Sensual persons. Worldly-minded, carnal people looking at the physical only and not looking at spiritual things. Deep, deep, deep spiritual things. And they cause divisions. Not having the spirit. So, you know, like, you see the, the ten virgins? I, I, don't, I, I, I wonder if they're even like the five foolish virgins. Because at least the five foolish virgins had oil. At least they had light for the darkness when it came. Light for the night. These people don't even have oil. But just Simons. But you, in verse 20, beloved, building yourselves up. You see, that's why I mean when I say, you know, the, the building up of self. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. I love how Brother Jude writes this. Brother Jude. This is the edification of self, the building up of self. But then at the same time, let's look at the building up of others. The building up of others in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, this is Brother Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep. Let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober. You know, these are military terms and I love it so much. Keep awake is how it translates. Let us not sleep. Do not slumber, I could say it in another way. You know, or it's time to study the Bible, you know. Don't fall asleep. 
Don't be a sluggard when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to holy things. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch. Translate says to keep awake and be vigilant. Be on guard. And be sober. Sober here translates as to have this self-control. Self-control. And you know what's so cool? You know, there's going to be moments where you slip in this area of self-control. If you're like me. And I love it so much. All those moments where you kick against the goads and you feel that pain. I love it when that happens. I mean, my flesh hates it. But my spirit loves it. Because you kick against the goods, you feel that carnal nature, you kick against the goods, and you feel that pain, you feel that sharpness of pain, and you're like, whoa, that hurts. And then you realize, man, I'm such a wretched human, I'm such a wretched man, I'm such a wretched woman. Lord, forgive me, I need you. Remember, my grace is sufficient. That's what the Lord says to us. My grace is sufficient. God's riches at Christ's expense. And he says, that's sufficient for you. You know, when you kick against the goads and you feel that pain, praise be unto the Lord. What would be bad is if you kick against the goads and you don't feel the pain. You kick against the goads and you're like, ah, no big deal. So what if I hurt his feelings? So what if I hurt her feelings? So what if people think this? So what if... I mean, you know, there, I do have that mindset too. So what? who cares what people think? But that's in terms of an obedience to the Lord. But you know, if I'm going to beat on my wife and cheat on my wife and stick a needle in my arm and cook spoons like crazy and do all these things, I'm like, oh, who cares? No big deal. That's not a good... That's a bad situation to be in. That's a terrible mindset to have. That's a, it's wickedness. But Paul's saying, hey, no, have self-control. Don't sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, these are for the spiritual sluggards, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as and, and, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see all these things and notice what he says here. For God did not appoint us to wrath. You know, find comfort in these words, especially for these days that we live in. And, you know, some people would argue, you see, we're not going to be here for the final seven years. We're. Where in the Bible does it say God's wrath is the final seven years? Show me. You won't find it. You will not find it. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. You see, it's like whether you're alive or dead, you will be together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. This word for edify is to build up one another. So Jude, what we read in Jude 1, you know, he's saying, you know, uh, uh, build up yourselves. 
You know, he's saying, you know, in Jude one twenty, build up your building up, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto uh, inter, uh, until uh, um, unto eternal life. And Brother Paul is saying, hey, verse 11 in First Thessalonians 5.11, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So it's, it's edify, it's to build up. So there's this building up, this construction of self, this building up or construction toward others. But then there's something else. And I'll say this in closing. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, there's the building up and construction of what God does inside of you. Look at what Paul says to the church in Ephesus here in verse 18 of chapter 2. Ephesians 2.18 For through him... We both have access by one spirit to the Father. Verse 18 is a loaded verse. Because you remember in the Old Testament tabernacle, what we're studying in Exodus, and you remember the, in the Holy of Holies, there was only the high priest had access to the Holy of Holies. And what's written here in verse 18, we have access to the Father by one spirit, and it's through Jesus Christ, the high priest, through him. We have, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Remember, Jesus Christ is the high priest. The Old Testament, what we're reading in Exodus, that's just a copy. I mean, not to, not to denigrate the holy word of God or the work of the Lord. But in context of my metaphor, my Van Gogh meta metaphor, it's like that's like the curators in a museum full of fifty dollar prints of Van Gogh, Rodin. They're not the original. They're copies. The originals are elsewhere. You know, stolen. I don't know. There was just a read an article not too long ago. There's a museum charging high dollars, but everything was fake, reprinted. The originals were sold on the black market. Some billionaire has originals in his house. But I'm talking about the original, not the copy, not the Old Testament copy. For through him we have, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers. You know, that's, that in itself is a loaded phrase here, the loaded statement. You are no longer strangers. You know, this isn't a small thing what is said here. You figure, say you've been walking with the Lord for five years, 10 years, 20 years, your whole life. You say, okay, I'm no longer a stranger. No big deal. I'm no longer a stranger. Praise the Lord. And I say, praise the Lord. But you tell this to a lost person who was just found. A lost person who was just found two hours ago, yesterday, last week, and has spent years and decades in drugs, 
in sex and alcohol. A person who was ready to blow their brains out. Because, man, there's, there's no place for me in this world. I can't fit in. And so a girl says, you know, uh, I can't fit in. You know, my dad's, you know, non-existent. My mom could care less. You know, this guy on the street says he loves me. You know, I'm going to get with him. He treats me like this. I leave him. This other guy says he's going to treat me like this. He beats me. He does all these things. And she's just so strung out. Or a guy who's strung out has needles in his arms every day. And says, you know what? I'm just going to jump off a bridge. The world's going to be a better place without me in it. I'm going to jump off a bridge. And then all of a sudden, they receive Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ. And you tell them these words. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. You are no longer a stranger. Do you know what these words are to such a person? Powerful, powerful, powerful words. Yeah, you wanted to blow your brains out. Yeah, you wanted to jump off a bridge. You felt like this world was like a better place without you in it. But you know what? You're no longer a stranger. And then that person grows and matures in Christ. And you realize, man, this world, <laughs> I don't belong here. It's kind of, you know, the Lord has a sense of humor, you know? You want to blow your brains out. And then like 10 years later, you're like, man, I it's crazy like I don't even belong here but you know we have a job to do in Christ now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens you see fellow citizens of where we talked about that briefly on Sunday Zion a new Jerusalem fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God you know the, the holy family is not of this world. Having been built, now we get on the construction side of things. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These are all servants of the Lord. The apostles and prophets. Him, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You know, I think I mentioned this before. I'm pretty sure I have. But, you know, if we were like builders back in the day, and I don't mean back in the day, I mean back in the day, like, you know, biblical times, you know, I mean, even though we are living in biblical times, but I mean, back in the day, like, you know, I don't know, like, uh, like, 0 AD, 0 1 AD, you know, so <laughs> I had to think about it, that was the pause. But back in the day, you know, you would say, it wasn't like, you know, they would, well, they would take this big old rock they would call it the cornerstone and they would place this rock on a firm foundation first they would you know get the firm foundation and they put this big old rock and then that big old rock would be the very rock that they base everything off of so they take this rock put it that like this is our base this is our cornerstone and then they would take the walls and build in one direction, go take the walls and build in the other direction, and everything would be based on this cornerstone. And they'd build rock by rock, by rock and brick, and they'd construct it, you know, and then everything would be based on this cornerstone. And that's what the Lord is saying here through Paul. 
built, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Remember, you were read in Hebrews just a little while ago in Hebrews, uh, uh, Hebrews, uh, 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 Hebrews 8. Remember, the Old Testament is just a copy. We're seeing the construction of the tabernacle, which is beautiful beyond belief. And then, you know, the tabernacle, which is, you know, it's, uh, it's with them in the wilderness. But then what happens when they get to Jerusalem? When David's like, Lord, I want to build you a temple. And the Lord says, David, you got blood on your hands. Your son can do it. Your son Solomon. And so Solomon builds a temple. And it's in Jerusalem. It has a firm foundation in Jerusalem. Take that with a grain of salt because, you know, that temple gets destroyed. The, the, the Herod's temple gets destroyed. First temple destroyed. Second temple destroyed. The third temple, the one that's coming, it will partially be destroyed. But then it will be rebuilt again when the Lord is here. So I mean, we're living in like biblical time. I mean, not to suggest that any era was non-biblical times. We're living in biblical times. Me personally, I believe we're the last generation. I'm never going to get tired of saying that either. The last day's church. So these things that are happening, the tabernacle to the temple, you know, and to the second temple, these are like foundational. Foundational in terms of like, you know, open your eyes of faith and you can see, wow, the Lord is showing us these things, how the tabernacle. When Jesus Christ says, I want to sup with you, I want to tabernacle with you. And here we are as sojourners in this world, but yet where is he? He's with us. He's with us. He's the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Which means what? Well, we have access to the Father by one spirit through this high priest. Remember, the veil was torn from top to bottom. When Jesus Christ is on the cross, he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He takes his last breath and it's like, boom, all of a sudden the earth shakes. And one of the Roman soldiers says, surely he's the son of God. What happens in the temple? The veil was torn. The veil to the Holy of Holies, torn from top to bottom. Not by man. Man's hands would cut it from bottom to top. But no, the veil was torn from top to bottom. You see? Very holy. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom you also, that's for today. It was for 2,000 years. It was for 2,000 years ago. It was for today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In the spirit. Simons. Can't receive this. The Holy Spirit bypassed Simon. In Acts 8. So you have these mockers. Oh 
Spirit doesn't move like that. That was for 2,000 years ago. Those are Simons. Those are Simons. It's to be a fisher of men, a fisher of women, and say, look, you know what? You're wrong. You're wrong. Where in the Bible? Show me in the Bible where there's an expiration date. You know, the whole, the, you say that that was for 2,000 years ago? Okay. You open up your Bible. Show me. Where does it say that? Impossible. They can't show you. Simons can't show you these things. Simons can't interpret these things. It's to say, hey, you know what, Simon? Repent. Get a new heart. Get a new spirit. That person, you might earn a brother, you might earn a sister, or that person might hate you. But that's why the Lord says, count the cost. Count the cost. That person might hate you. Or that person might love you like a brother, love you like a sister. But remember, they hated him first. Very treacherous days that we're living in. Which is why we have to be wise. Ears open, ears perked up. Listening, attentive to the things of the Holy Spirit. Because he's going to guide our steps. He will guide our steps. He will guide your steps. Individually and corporately as a church body, a people of the way. And yeah, we're in this weird time period right now. You know, social distancing, those weird virus, all these things going on. But you know what? It's like there's going to be time where it's going to be okay. We're, we're back on track, you know. It's time to rock and roll. And don't forget, you know, you see this weird peace going on. Like everyone's like, man, when this is over, the, the world is going to be unified. You know, all these things. That I read this article in Los Angeles. They're like, man, you know, nobody's driving their cars anymore. The clear skies, all the, 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 the O2 index, it's like the lowest it's ever been. How beautiful it is for the planet. All these things. Everybody wants to sing Kumbaya. And it's like, wait a second. Are we about to enter the false peace that the Lord warned us about? Not a time to be asleep. Not a time to be asleep. Stay awake. So we're going to end our study here. And, you know, we're looking at this construction that we see in the Old Testament. And it is immensely beautiful. What is happening in this tabernacle? But as New Covenant believers, it's not to say, okay, let's go out in the wilderness and construct a tabernacle. That's going back to the law. And if righteousness can come through the law, then Jesus Christ died in vain. We know that he did not die in vain. That's a copy. I don't want to be a curator in a museum of, you know, $50 prints. I don't want to be the blind guide. I don't want to be the stupid person. I don't want to be deaf. I don't want to be like the Simon. No, I want to be alive in Christ. And you know what? We're going to Zion. That's our final destination. That's when we can have, that's when I can have rest. That's when I can finally exhale. That's where we're going. 
So we see this construction and never, ever forget the construction that the Lord is doing in your heart, in your life. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Never, ever forget the holy, holy, holy temple that he's building. And you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So we'll end our study here and we'll pick up next week. Love you guys. Miss you guys. God bless you.